This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome our first-time guest, director-producer of Sky Island Storytelling, Jeremy Norrie. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. How are you tonight? I'm doing well. How are you guys? We're pretty well. Yes, actually, it's uh, been a good day so far for me. Jeremy, with all new guests to the show, we'd like to ask a few questions to allow the audience just to get to know you. So first up, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and why you love movies. Sure. My name is Jeremy Nori. I live in Southern California, born and raised. My dad is from Scotland, so I have a little bit of a different upbringing than, than many. Currently, I am a director and producer of independent documentary films. My website is called theskyisland.com, and you can find my films on Amazon, on uh, 2B TV. They're all over on many different platforms, and they're free to watch. We do all kinds of different topics from like things like UFOs and Bigfoot and ghosts, all the way to very serious things like mindfulness, bullying, uh, animal rehabilitation. And uh, I've done a martial arts documentary and I have kind of a history in that as well. That kind of leads me towards our movie for tonight. Excellent. So what is your favorite movie and why? Actually, my favorite movie, so I, I like to say two different movies. I always used to just say Dazed and Confused was my favorite movie. And I love that movie. So I love small towns and I love everything about the, the community aspect. And especially in that movie, there's all kinds of like actors that you know now kind of too. And it was, it's almost like looking at them as like growing up and it's just got these really wonderful positive vibes they always say that movies have to have like this really negative aspect to it. I don't really feel like there's anything negative in that. Like there, there's the, the hazing, but that's kind of it. But that movie is kind of a simple movie, especially from a production standpoint and like movie making. There's a lot of cool things about it, but in that way, it's not my favorite. And my favorite movie from like a filmmaking perspective is Natural Born Killers by uh, Oliver Stone. And I like that movie because it's extremely creative. It's just a whole bunch of wild, different filmmaking styles all kind of rolled into one thing. There's animation in it. They're, they're doing all kinds of stuff that's just really wild and creative. The story uh, is uh, Tarantino, right? So there's this really beautiful story that makes the whole thing kind of feel like one of his films but then oliver stone is doing it so it it's also like got this twist to it where it doesn't feel that way at all and there's so many great performances in it like woody harrelson i feel like that's like his breakout performance from like being the, the cheers guy to now becoming this actor guy and the 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 wayne gale character by robert downey jr i mean it's amazing. So there's there's just a lot in that movie that I really love from a filmmaking perspective. 
And I just love the wild violence and it's just a, it's a crazy movie. So you already included several pieces of what makes that a great movie, but what makes a good movie for you? Generally, it's a hero story. So I like a lot of movies. I can kind of get into whatever we're doing. If the director and and the producer and, and everybody has really done a good job, then I can kind of get into a different storyline. We can go dark. We can go wherever we're going. But generally what I like in a movie is is a traditional hero, uh, hero story, which is like your character kind of faces adversity. They're a relatable person of some kind. And then they, they face this adversity and then they overcome the adversity to like really some sort of wonderful result. That's ideal. And those are generally the movies that I like the best. However, some of my favorite movies are not that way. They're downers. They are <laughs> uh, slow and creepy and weird. I like a lot of movies that when I recommend them to people, then I realize, oh, yeah, I guess I'm kind of strange that I really like this movie as much as I do. But it is what it is. Well, any movie can find an audience of one, and it's probably well worth making at that point. Yeah, I suppose that's true. There's all kinds of really strange independent movies that people love and to each their own. So let's get into our movie for the evening. Tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to Rocky II from 1979, directed, written by, and starring Sylvester Stallone with Carl Weathers, Talia Shire, Burt Young, Burgess Meredith, and Tony Burton. It is a direct sequel to the Best Picture winning film of 1976 that we previously covered in our third episode of the show and was the third highest grossing domestic film of 1979. So the easy question at the top of my list is, why is the Rocky franchise so enduring? It's a love story. It's overcoming the odds. It speaks to the average American because, I mean... It's a Horatio Alger story from what you learned in history class, where you can make something of yourself. You get into the right situation. But ultimately, I think it's realizing that you can be more than yourself and more than just the individual if you are in the right relationship and can strive towards love. So it just speaks to middle America. Oh, yeah, I totally agree with that. Another, a couple of things that I I wrote down that are different than that. I think a big part of the Rocky movies is also the music that people kind of don't really realize how much music uh, that is made specifically for a movie, and especially like orchestras and, and things that they're not just songs. They're like to carry the emotion of certain scenes. And Rocky really does that well. And I'm not sure that everybody kind of notices that as much as as it is. It's kind of subtle in many ways, or it's just kind of little things here and there. But it really makes the emotion of certain scenes like go over the top, along with all those other things. I wrote also Hero Story. It's a classic hero story. But uh, I think the characters, like literally the actors that are chosen to play the uh, certain characters are really lovable. 
and they they did that extremely well. I know that you sent me a clip on TikTok. Was it yesterday or the day before, Dad? How Sylvester Stallone bristles at the this being termed a sports movie. But one of the things I'll take from Jeremy's response there was the sweeping score in every good sports movie, especially if there's like a montage, there's a training montage, and there is in almost every Rocky film. If there's, you know, a set of plays during a series or the big match or a couple of games, whatever it is, all of them have a good, bright, moving score that emotionally moves you the way that the director wants you to be taken during some some climactic moment within the movie. This adheres to that so closely. The soundtrack was a big deal when the original movie came out, and this one also became like a Billboard Top 100 album after this movie came out because it's so closely tied into what we think of Rocky, and every part of Rocky is going to fly now, or the emotional moments post-fight where we did it, and it's played with that background music, and it becomes emotional. I don't know why. I think the first time that I, I really watched these movies was when I was maybe eight or nine years old, and every time I still see them, I get thrust back into that mode where I'm an eight or nine-year-old kid and watching Rocky do it as comically bad as it would be without the music it still brings a tear to my eye every time because it's partnered so well. Yeah, I totally agree. The music is is something that gets kind of overlooked in film a lot, but it really makes or breaks projects. And this is a great example of, of like how it can be done well. And and it's not it's not easy to do. People try to replicate what this was, and I don't think always were successful. And it's further evidence of what I've said needs to be bringing back the orchestra for more and more movies. We have gone to more of the Scorsese mode of doing things with a lot of pop music played in movies. And that can be fine, but it gets overused sometimes. He does it from an artistic point of view, but I'd much rather have the big sweeping scores on things like when we got John Williams with Spielberg doing stuff that always seemed to add more to a movie to me than just about anything else. Yeah. I think that there's a new opportunity for people. I think Trent Reznor has been doing some scores and there's some different takes on it that are getting pretty cool. It's not just a, just an orchestra, but it is a similar, it's more scoring a whole film. It's not just songs. And I like that too. But I, I do agree with you that there's something about an orchestra and there's something about classic like instruments. Dad, what is your relationship to this film or this franchise? <laughs> okay, I did not see the original Rocky because I was kind of young at the time. Probably HBO, if I remember correctly. But I went to the theater to see Rocky too. I figured out... It was before I got my driver's license, so my mother would have had to have driven me to the movies with some friends to see it. So it was the summer before uh, I got my license. I remember going and watching it because it was a big deal, because everybody wanted to see the sequel after seeing the original Rocky. Jeremy, what's your story? 
Yeah, I barely remember seeing it the first time. I was a kid, and I think, I'm trying to remember, I was either at camp or I was in the Boy Scouts. And I saw it in some sort of group with kids. But other than that, I barely remember the first time seeing it. And then I remember watching it again as an adult. And, you know, honestly, it's not one of my favorites uh, in all the Rocky franchise movies. I haven't watched it that many times. But my, my relationship to it is more or less like the things that happen in the movie that I can relate to. So I clearly remember, and it might, I guess now thinking about it, it was probably a little bit later. It, maybe I was like 12 or 13. And I think ESPN Classic, back when that was still a channel, had on the entire franchise for like a weekend, and it was Burt Reynolds hosting it. I remember that very distinctly. But we, it was like when we first had TiVo at home, and I recorded like all five of them right in a row. And you just told me, okay, when you get to four or five, just delete them. Because you hate four and five is terrible. But I remember all the little anecdotes and more than anything, I remember at the end of Rocky Five, Bert coming on and basically saying that the idea for Rocky Five was is that Stallone was going to kill off Rocky and the studio wouldn't have it. Because it would be like killing off John Wayne. You just can't do it. You don't kill American folk heroes. So then he ends up surviving, but it makes the film even worse, which I didn't think it was. <laughs> uh, yeah. you, you could really do with Rocky Five. It's it's really bad. I think I've only seen it the one time, but still. And so there is a certain nostalgia for an age in my life where I was much less of a critical moviegoer. I just enjoyed films and a brilliant film score can always work and tug on my emotions. Maybe I'm an easy mark when it comes to the musical manipulation within films, but that always has added to my experience within stuff. And so anytime there's a really good score with a movie, I've always said that that really enhances things for me. And this has always been a film score that's tied to what's going on in the movie, whether it's the fight scenes or it's him running down the streets of Philadelphia. It's, kind of this hero's arc of this guy defying the odds to somehow become the heavyweight champion. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. The music is kind of subtle for a lot of people. So they get caught up in watching what's going on and they don't even realize that the music is keeping them going and lifting them up or bringing them kind of more down to really feel the sorrow in some of these moments that it's an up and down movie where it's like, Oh, things are bad. Oh, things are getting better. Nope. Things are bad again. It, it really is a roller coaster that the music kind of takes you on that ride. I'm glad that, that it, it gets a, a recognition that it does, but I don't think it gets enough. I think most people, especially like the average person that watched it, they have no idea. So Jeremy, what do you think this movie's about? I mean, if, if we're just getting really simple, it's just simply about the rematch. It's It starts out with the whole end of the very first movie, which is, that's a nice little trick to get like a few minutes, uh, 10, 15 minutes of the last movie and, you know, into your next project. Watch that again. I like that. 
But rest of what I wrote was, it, it's about like how the rags to riches story isn't always what it seems like, right? He goes from this low nothing to this big to do and he's spending all this money and he's not happier and it just results in more problems. And that's real life. There's some real lessons in, in there. I think that's kind of more or less what it's about is that it's kind of overdone in certain ways. It's like, this is what's more important in life. Your, your wife almost dies. Your, your kid is okay. You know, like these things, it's not realistic, but I think it, it's, it fits like towards what they were trying to do. They really lift you up and then they really bring you down, but they don't really hit you too hard with anything too horrible. You know, it's, it's just a lesson upon what is important in life and what really makes you happy and, and that kind of thing. Well, to some extent, this is a film that talks about trying to be something you're not. You know, he's going to, he wants to take a, a, a different path. He wants to not be involved in boxing. He's going to do commercials. He's going to do all these other things. None of it ends up being very fruitful because it's not him. And he's not being true to himself. And ultimately, he ends up figuring out that, you know, he needs to go into what he's good at, even though that may not be what he wants to do. That's his calling. And then to understand, again, that even in that context, unless you have support by the people around you, it's difficult to succeed even in that area uh, until Adrian says, when he just is a shell of what he should be doing and what he needs to be in order to ultimately persevere in the next fight. Well, I think more than anything, to me, this is an identity movie. If you're thrust in, let's say, a pro sports career into what would be an early retirement, you're past a certain prime age of fighting or whatever else, and one of the good things about the Rocky franchise is it does take you through all of the phases of this guy's career, going through the five, six movies. You know, what's the post-retirement career look like? What does the just-retired career look like? What does it happen after your initial 15 minutes of fame look like? And this is the movie that's after his initial 15 minutes of fame. One of the reasons I think this movie is relatable, yet even to a modern sense, is how much our culture tries to go viral on a regular basis. And if you have one thing that blows up, what happens with your 15 minutes of fame? Rocky finds out clearly in this movie, where the original movie is all about, I've found love and I've found a reason to fight. And so if for no other reason than just to prove that I could do it and that I could endure, I'm going to go all 15 rounds with the champ and see what happens because I have found some meaning in my life. And the second movie is, is okay, I found this meaning, but now what do I do with it without the thing that's really defined my entire life up to this point? And I think for a lot of people, especially in my generation that are constantly changing careers, what do you do when your career has been defined by one thing and you move on from that thing and have to try and find what your identity is outside of this career choice? 
especially in a movie that relates so much to the soul of America as the underdog. A lot of Americans would be lost. And Dad, we've talked about it in the last few weeks, how you have defined yourself in the, as an attorney so long that you had said you wanted to be buried with your JD. Yeah, friend of, of ours works for me is talking about retiring and, and he's just not going to renew his license. And I'm like, oh my God, I couldn't do that. I can't imagine ever not being a lawyer because I worked so hard to get it. You paid so many years. Yeah, and I've spent so much time in it trying to perfect the profession to just even when I'm retired to walk away and not be that. Boy, I just can't fathom. It's just beyond my comprehension. And so for all the breaks that he gets early on, he has this source of money and he's going to blow it on watches and a car and jackets and all of these other things, trying to spoil his wife. That's never what was important. What was important was trying to find his identity and being true to himself, even if that was at the potential cost of his own health in the end of it, is that you want the person that you spend your life with to be defined by the things that make them who they are. And I think she kind of come, comes around to that, even despite all the potential dangers. Yeah, I think that's true. That's the kind of cliffhanger of the, the movie, right? Where she doesn't want him to fight because it's dangerous. He, he doesn't want to fight also because it's dangerous for a little while. But then he kind of comes to grips with it. And the guy's kind of needling him. Polly and uh nick and everybody finally comes all together and she's the last one hanging right and when she does finally come through like we don't really she doesn't really say why but polly like goes to her and says all this stuff about how he's gonna get hurt worse if she doesn't come around and i think that probably is that's that's like the foreshadowing, right? They're like, well, okay, she's now thinking about it, and she thinks, yeah, you know, of course, I would rather him not fight do something else. But, you know, if that's not possible, then I'd rather be supportive and have him do the, as good as he can pursuing his dreams rather than make this a conflict, make this worse than it needs to be. And I, that's a lesson for everybody, right? Yes. I, I'm having a hard time fathoming that, you know, wives being the last person to be supportive in an endeavor. <laughs> you just be thankful that she doesn't listen to these episodes. <laughs> yeah. So let's give everybody some background on the movie. Dad, do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. After losing the heavyweight title fight, Rocky Balboa, Sylvester Stallone, attempts to find a life after boxing. He marries his girlfriend, Adrian, Talia Shire, and starts a family. However, when he realizes that he has little skill other than boxing, he decides to relent and fight Apollo Creed, Carl Weathers, again. Opposed by Adrian because of his health, Rocky struggles to train and meet Apollo's challenge. With Mickey, Burgess Meredith, as his trainer and confidant, Rocky must determine his future and whether he will summon the inner strength to defeat Creed this time around. Thank you. 
Cast for this movie, Sylvester Stallone as Robert Rocky Balboa, slash writer, slash director. Talia Shire as Adrian Balboa. Burt Young as Paulie Panino. Carl Weathers as Apollo Creed. Burgess Meredith as Michael Mickey Goldmill. Tony Burton as Tony Duke Evers. Sylvia Meals as Mary Ann Creed. Joe Spinell as Tony Gazzo. Recognition for this movie? Rocky II opened on June 15, 1979. It is a direct sequel to the Best Picture winning film of 1976. In the United States and Canada, the film grossed $6.3 million during its opening weekend and $8.1 in four days. It went on to gross $85 million at the North American box office and $200 million worldwide. It would finish in the top three highest grossing films of 1979 in both the North American market and worldwide. Just as in the previous installment, Bill Conti composed the film's music. A soundtrack album containing Conti's score was released on August 25, 1979 and charted on the Billboard 200 for five consecutive weeks. Rocky II holds a 72% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 61 score on Metacritic, and a 3.6 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Did you know? Chuck Wepner, the real-life inspiration for Rocky, was offered the part of a trainer named Chink Weber. According to Wepner, he read for Sylvester Stallone, but did very poorly. The character was deleted from the script. The name Chink Weber ended up being used for Sonny Landham's character in Stallone's movie Lockup from 1989. Did you know? When Rocky is training for the fight, he is sparring with a smaller, quicker fighter. The sparring partner is played by real-life champion Roberto Duran. No mas. Did you know? In one version of the screenplay, there's a flashback scene that shows Rocky first meeting Mickey, and we learn Rocky's real first name, Robert. Did you know? In the first draft of the script, the fight took place at the Roman Colosseum. (laughs) Okay. Of course, Stallone making it absurd. Did you know? 800 local schoolchildren were used as extras for the scene depicting Rocky's run through Philadelphia. Did you know? Analysis by Philadelphia locals tracked the route Rocky took through the city during his training run when all the children ended up running with him. If he took this actual route from his South Philly house to the top of the art museum steps, he would have run approximately, any guesses? 12 miles. I'm going to go 30 miles. Ding, ding. 30.2 miles in one day. Four miles more than a marathon. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that's a good good run. (laughs) Yeah. Did you know? During his preparation for the film, Sylvester Stallone was bench-pressing 220 pounds when the weight fell and tore his right pectoral muscle. This was shortly before the fight scene was to be filmed, and ultimately the scene was shot with Stallone still badly injured. Did you know? After the bell dings, signaling the end of the second round, Sylvester Stallone and Carl Weathers are seen pushing, shoving, taunting, and ultimately being pulled apart by their respective cornermen. They continue to taunt each other before returning to their corners. Stallone revealed later that they were actually angry with each other and were not acting at that point. Several blows that were supposed to miss him landed in the carefully choreographed fight, which they had spent months meticulously planning out, went off track during that scene, but he liked the reaction the scene produced. He decided to leave their momentary breaking of character in, and the viewing audience never realized the two actors were, in reality, quite livid with each other. Did you know? 
It took Sylvester Stallone and editors Danford B. Green and Stanford C. Allen over eight months to edit the climactic fight scene so as to meet Stallone's approval. That's quite a long time. They're rough. Yeah. I wonder if that would have gone like twice as fast with digital. And with that, we'll take our first break and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week in recognition of the 81st anniversary of Pearl Harbor, we will be discussing From Here to Eternity from 1953, directed by Fred Zinneman, written by Daniel Teradash, starring Burt Lancaster, Montgomery Clift, Deborah Kerr, Donna Reed, Frank Sinatra, and Ernest Borgnine. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Gentlemen, we have best performance up. Jeremy, let's start with you. I didn't write the actor's name. I just wrote the character. Okay. I chose Mick. So Burgess Meredith. Okay. I thought that his character was allowed to really come out personality-wise in this movie. Like You got to see a lot more of where he's coming from. He had that powerful speech in the hospital church. And I just thought his, his character really, it was cool in the first movie, and but it was very small. And this was much larger. And he even had a couple like funny moments. So it was much better for him. Thought that character re- was really the best for the movie. Interestingly, I had Burgess Meredith, but I went with a secondary performance. And the only reason I did, because I do agree with Jeremy that he did a really great job, and I love Burgess Meredith because watched Burgess Meredith's career through most of my life and really thought he's been a very underrated actor. But I had to go with Stallone simply because he starred in it, he directed it, and he wrote it. And it's difficult to not give it to him in that context. So I went with Stallone for best performance overall for basically all three things. Well, after the original director of the first film had to drop out due to scheduling conflicts, Stallone made a power move by basically holding the rights to the sequel, which he knew the studio wanted to produce, holding them hostage until he was given the opportunity to direct the film. And that's really what separates us out. But also, he's written, I think, every one of the Rocky films, and I think he wrote at least the first Creed film. This is a very personal story to him. This is the thing that really broke him out in his career. And even though a lot of people associate him with kind of the caricature that became Stallone during the 80s with the Rambo films and all the other action movies that he did, and he kind of has this certain speech pattern and style that's himself, I think the Rocky franchise grounds him in a way that is removed from kind of his 80s persona. Even though a couple of the movies are from the 80s, there's still kind of this more unheralded underdog type actor or hero in these movies. And he really gets personally slighted if you don't take the movies the way that he intends them to be. So I think because of the personal aspect and the amount of things that he's doing, I would give it also to Stallone as kind of the obvious choice just from a well-rounded point of view because he is the story and this is his movie. So if we move past that title, though, 
I considered Burgess Meredith and I really enjoy the character of Mickey in all three of the films that he's in before spoiler alert, he passes in the third one. But I thought he actually had more to do in the first movie. I think he gives some very impassioned speeches about why Rocky would not take the opportunity to really fight Creed and needs to take things seriously. And while he does have certain monologues in this one, I actually thought the bigger character that was looming over the movie in a way that she wasn't exactly in the first one, and it's maybe a little bit lost on me, is Talia Shire. I thought she had to do some very good emotional work during the course of this movie, where she's kind of battling not only herself, but she's also battling Rocky as she tries to negotiate, can I let him continue to be himself when it's putting the person I care about most in danger? But at the same time, and it goes back to what I said earlier as far as identity, if I take this away from him, is he the same person that I love? And that dichotomy between the two things during the course of the movie, I thought was really well played. And she is the most pivotal secondary character within this movie for me. Yeah, the secondary character I chose, I thought about her. I thought about, I decided no Rocky for any of those ones because he's the obvious choice. I figured somebody else would choose him. <laughs> and you were right. And I, I kind of thought that also about this other one too. She she was great in it and definitely a very different role than the first movie. I kind of like her in the first movie though a lot. It's hard to say what, which one is better. But I chose as the secondary character, I chose Apollo because his roles are kind of underappreciated and he's really good. I, especially right at the beginning where they're in the wheelchairs and he's like taunting them on and then they're having these various meetings. He's just very believable. He comes off as the heavyweight champ a hundred percent and, and just the, the whole thing about it, how he's reading the letters and he's getting real mad. And uh, all of it is, to me, just like a, a very believable performance. That kind of It's so believable, it get, goes under the radar uh, for how good it is. So I actually made him my most charismatic because he takes over any scene that he's a part of. He's a larger-than-life character within these. And for the longest time, I didn't even remember the actor's name. It was... Carl Weathers was just Apollo Creed to me because you didn't really see him in almost anything else. But he does a very careful balancing act within this movie. He's the antagonist without really being somebody that you hate. Like in sports, it's very easy as a sports hate that there are two opposing forces, especially in individual or solo sports like this. And in a solo sport movie, we should probably hate the antagonist of the whole movie. But we come to sympathize with him. We understand where he's coming from. We have kind of this role of the shoe being on the other foot in some ways because he's the guy that's the champ and of privilege, but he's also the black character in this movie. Whereas the disadvantaged, poor uh, shoelaces guy in this movie is white and kind of an Italian immigrant family of sorts. So it's kind of a backward way to look at races within at least the late 70s America, but he's also very likable. I never got to the point where I said, I really want Apollo to lose. I just really want Rocky to win. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think that's everybody. Giving it some sort of context, I mean, Apollo Creed is Muhammad Ali. Yes, obviously, because this is based on the Chuck Wepner Muhammad Ali fight. Correct. And having grown up in that time frame, there were a lot more people who hated Muhammad Ali because of his brashness and his loud mouth than liked Muhammad Ali. I mean, I remember as a kid the the thriller in Manila and all of those the big fights in the seventies. Did you just like white up the thriller in Manila? Okay, probably did. But I mean, I just remember that, and I remember because um, you know because it was pay per view, so you didn't get to see the fights. But ABC Wild World of Sports with Howard Cosell would then broadcast the fights afterwards. And you could watch them on television over the weekends on a Saturday or a Sunday. And I remember watching his fight with Chuck Foreman. I remember watching his fight with Joe Frazier. And I always was rooting for Chuck Foreman and Joe Frazier because I hated Muhammad Ali. Because you don't do that. You don't be brash and uh, obnoxious. It's just not what you were taught being a kid in the Midwest. You didn't understand it. So I've often thought Carl Weathers did a very good job of portraying Muhammad Ali. And I will say that having watched it now, 30 years removed, uh, let me take that back, 40 years removed, he plays it with a lot more empathy and understanding of the character than I remembered because Muhammad Ali has become a beloved person in society now because I think people realized it was an act for purposes of uh, promotion and self-promotion and that he was different than the character he was portraying in public. And I think Carl Weathers did an ace job of presenting that. He's not my most charismatic. I am for charismatic one with Stallone because having been in that time frame, Stallone was like, I mean, the best term to use is he was a rock star, and everybody loved Stallone, and Stallone was trying to do different stuff. It became a little more obvious that Stallone was limited when he started, like, he did a, a, a movie with Dolly Parton where he was supposed to be, uh, it was supposed to be a comedy. It was horrible. It was <laughs> abysmal. <laughs> It was only later when Stallone started becoming more political with Rocky IV and with Rambo, having grown up in that time frame of the, of the Reagan years and the what I thought was jingoism, that I kind of had a problem with Stallone. And I think, to some extent, Stallone made himself, marketed himself well, but I think he almost kind of took a different turn in trajectory for his career. I think if he doesn't necessarily make Apollo or make Rocky Four and Rambo, his career is probably more admired and would have probably lasted longer than it did. I think people don't want to disassociate with his political views on in film somewhat. I'm not sure I would agree with that, but I'm not sure this is the place to have that debate. Well, I would agree with most charismatic because that's who I chose also, Rocky. Uh, but I use the term babyface 
kind of the 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 wrestling term for the good guy and uh he is the he's the ultimate good guy in the movie he wants to do right by everybody he also struggles and people just so relate to all of that stuff and he's simple you you root for him what's more charismatic than that well he really is the definition of the average guy as you point out going into the I don't know, employment office and trying to find a job that isn't necessarily manual labor. I think people can relate to that. Getting fired multiple times during this movie, people can relate to that. And so I think there are a lot of pieces of this movie that appeal to the general American soul that make this a more appealing movie than probably just the run of the mill sports movie. Oh, yeah, definitely. When you say that he does, he hates having this called a sports movie. I think he's fair. There's almost no no competition in it. There's like the first one. It starts with a boxing match, and then there's not another one until the end of the movie. <laughs> the story isn't the boxing in this. Not especially not compared to the movies now. The newer ones are much more focused on the actual sport. And I like that too, but. These movies are based on characters. Let's go to best scene then. My nominees are, so the opening flashback that Jeremy's mentioned a couple of times to the original movie and kind of those few fight scenes, even though if you try and match them up, the end of the first Rocky film is a little bit different than the opening of Rocky II. There there are kind of some different cut scenes that they must have filmed. Then the next one, I have 15 Minutes of Fame, which is kind of the post-fight, I guess, couple of months where he's going on this spending spree and doing all these things that he wants and trying to provide for his wife. Then I have Rocky Does Commercials, because I think that's one of the more comedic scenes in the movie, even though it's a bit disheartening just to watch him fail repeatedly over and over. Then I have Creed Calls Out Rocky, That one seems obvious. Adrian Falls Ill, also obvious. I have Gonna Fly Now, referring to his training montage after the whole win Rocky speech. Then we go to the first rounds. So the first two rounds where he's kind of getting beat up and bloodied and bruised. I'm not going down again. So kind of the middle fights, that area, the sequence is basically rounds three through 14. And then I have the final round and kind of the aftermath. Are there any pieces that I kind of skipped over? I know that I really skipped over or skimmed some of the guts of the movie from the early portion, like him working in the, uh, I don't know, would you call it the butcher shop or the meat factory or whatever? Meat packing. Meat packing. But uh, I don't find those to be as enticing of the pieces of this film. But any of those that uh, you think I should have included? I think you got most of them. The best scene that I chose was the the Mick in the church with Rocky speech. Okay. I would probably put that under the general kind of Adrian falls ill where yeah. he's just kind of like either he's at her bedside or he's at the chapel. That's kind of what I was thinking. Dad, what do you have as best scene? I have that whole thing from Rocky and I, I can't differentiate it. It's from Rocky failing doing commercials to being in the meat packing plant, to working at Mickey's gym, 
it's it's the whole thing that's the transition from being on top of the game and trying to take advantage of his fame to realizing that he's got to do what he needs to in order to succeed or at least to put bread on the table. And to me, that's the best scene because it shows how he has to come to reality with what he has for skills and who he really is. I'm going to put down Gonna Fly now. It's my favorite part of the movie. It's that post win Rocky win moment and everybody gets excited and he starts working out really hard and you get this like Rocky's on top of the world and he's going to crush everybody kind of mode to the film and the music gets going and the kids start participating. But when he starts pulling away and he just like absolutely sprints at the end to the top of the steps gets me every time it hits me right in the feels. It's what I love about this movie and I could take that almost on a repeat. It's one of those few scenes I could just watch over and over and over again. That is that is what it is designed to do. I, I like that scene too. So favorite scene for you, Jeremy? My favorite scene is Rocky chasing chickens. <laughs> and that one is just because it's like, it's become this like kind of classic moment in the Rocky films that every everyone remembers that moment. And it really isn't that big of a part of the movie or anything, but it it's, it's, it's just, I don't know why it's just so relatable to people that it, it's very, very memorable. And for me in this movie, this is, he has all his training in the original movie. That is great. But this is like the part of the training that people remember. I think the most kind of like the hitting the meat, from the other movie, this is the hitting the meat from from this movie, the most like memorable little training thing. Mine is that the montage of the training and ultimately the chicken. And I'm going to tell you this because I remember this specifically in the theater. Everybody applauding when he caught the damn chicken. <laughs> people were bought into it yeah yeah i mean like i remember it being a bigger thing watching it back and then there's like the one scene where he first releases the chicken and he can't catch it and it's like a few seconds and then that little part in the montage where he catches the chicken and that's kind of (laughs) it for me most indelible is adrian wakes up win rocky win Anytime I think of this movie, that's the immediate place my mind goes because that's when the movie really picks up and hits its final momentum going through the entire training montage and you get to the fight and that's the best parts of this movie for me. I think the final stretch is really where all the momentum is and that's what makes this movie. Yeah, any of the boxing sequences for me, like when he first gets agrees to the fight and then there's the training stuff and you're starting to feel it and okay, yeah, it's picking up from here. Things are getting better. And then she gets ill, and it's not good. Downer, and then she's fine. Yep, we're back on. Indelible is the the finale. It's the last couple of scenes. I remember I was watching it, and your mother came in and said, oh, you're watching Rocky too." And I said, yes, this has the 
most implausible ending I've ever seen in a film because it's like they both get knocked out and they both have to try to figure out how they're going to get up. And I'm like, I understand because ultimately you want to show that Rocky had the inner fortitude to succeed, that Creed didn't because he had already succeeded. Okay, I understood it, but I'm going... So, to me, that's the most indelible. Oh, I had an honorable mention for indelible. Sure. So, just, like, in a memorable point, Apollo is reading the letters, and he's like, you faked it, go kill yourself, and da-da-da-da-da. Like, that whole sequence of him reading those letters, I love it so much. I feel like it is so real. And it's it's kind of so preachy on social media and the world we live in now with comments and how hideous all the comments are (laughs) and how true that would have been to be one of those people getting these letters and then reading the letters. And oh, man, so funny to me. Yeah, I completely agree that I think it's still relatable from that front especially with anybody having to deal with fame. There's just more people dealing with fame and what allegedly fame is in 2022. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I do take a little bit of issue with uh, your contemplation there on the ending pop. I don't think it's the most improbable thing that's happened in a Rocky film. I mean... (laughs) Well, I've actually, I've seen a fight end in a double knockout where the... The guy who woke up first got awarded the fight. I agree, Tom. I'll take it back. If you can change, and I can change. (laughs) The point being, I'm going to have my quibbles with the end of the fight because I think there are some problems with how it ends, but he was the person who endured more. That was his whole thing is, is I'm just going to keep standing. I'm not going to go down. And yes, he goes down. Creed does too, but Creed doesn't have the fortitude to get back up. So anyway, with that, we'll take our second break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, you can still sign up for our newsletter at the new Ronnie Find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at G podcast, or find our new Facebook page under greatest movie of all time podcast. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, unfortunately. Gray Fredrickson, 85, was an American film producer. He was associated a lot with Francis Ford Coppola. He uh, was one of the producers of Godfather 2, which he won an Oscar for. He also produced Apocalypse Now and The Outsiders. We also lost Mickey Kuhn, 90. He was a child actor. He'd been in Gone with the Wind and Red River and Broken Arrow. Later in his career, after he uh, had served in the U.S. military during World War, at the end of World War II, and then uh, in Korea, he changed careers because he was having difficulty getting parts as an adult. So he primarily uh, was in business later part of his life. Jason David Frank, 49, an American actor. He was in the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Sweet Valley High, and the Junior Defenders. He was also a mixed martial artist. So he's famous for being the original Green Power Ranger on Power Rangers. 
a show that debuted when I was two and was all the rage by the time that I was watching them when I was four or five and then subsequently banned from watching the show because I used to exercise all of the mixed martial arts moves on my sisters. And he is notably the reason that I do not like being called Tommy because I was so angry that he converted from the green Power Ranger to the white Power Ranger that I no longer liked the name Tommy. Yes. So little anecdotes into my life. Yes, I remember specifically coming home and hearing that from your mother about you trying to kick your sisters in the face. <laughs> uh, yes. We also lost James Winborn, 85. He's an American stuntman, also an actor and a film director. He uh, did stunts in Halloween, The Stuntman, and Pale Rider. He also was a three-time film director for 1988's Evil Alter, 1991's The Death Merchant, and 1993's Miami Beach Cops. He's also most notable for being the original Michael Myers stuntman from Halloween, and while most people know somebody else for being the person behind the mask, he was the actual stuntman for all of the action scenes throughout that movie, and he worked on over 70 films throughout his career as a stuntman. Nice long career. Nikki Icox, 47, American actress. She was in Dark Blue, Jeepers Creepers 2, and uh, Cold Case. She unfortunately passed away quite early due to cancer, but she's received many glowing tributes from a lot of her co-stars on the franchise Supernatural from the CW that's been going on, I think, for well over a decade. She retired from acting in 2014, and it acquired quite a following through her healthy eating and vegan lifestyle website, Cashews and Olives. And then lastly, this is a personal loss to me. Robert Clary, 96, was a French-American actor. He did uh, later in his career uh, Days of Our Lives and The Bold and the Beautiful, but he's best known as Corporal LeBeau on Hogan's Heroes. And when I was a kid, Hogan's Heroes was my favorite show. I love that show. Robert Clary was Jewish. He was a concentration camp survivor. In fact, Hogan's Heroes had the interesting point of being that Colonel Clank, Werner Kemperer, his father was the Jewish conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic. They fled. John Banner, who was Sergeant Schultz, was Jewish and fled Germany to avoid concentration camps. Reuben Askin, who had played... General Bull Carter was Jewish and fled Germany to avoid concentration camps. So a large portion of that show were Jews who had fled Germany or Europe to avoid persecution. And losing him at a time when we've had new emphasis on anti-Semitic views, I think is poignant. And I would just comment again that I don't understand some of the views on this, and I hope that uh, we as a society can appreciate somebody who had a very long, productive life and contributed a lot. To me personally, I still, when I can find the shows, record them on my TiVo or my DVR and watch them because it just brings back my childhood. I'll just add the note. Not only was he a participant in the show and had a lot kind of going for being anti-Nazi, 
with the show poking fun at the whole universe, but there was an even larger personal stake given that he lost, I guess, 10 of his 13 siblings and both of his parents during the Holocaust as well. So for somebody to go through all of that and come out on the other side and be willing to not only not seemingly harbor the same level of anger that I think would be natural to most of us, but be able to poke fun at things like this and be a very good advocate and defendant of that show, whereas a lot of other people poked or panned the show for being too lighthearted about a very difficult subject. I uh, commend him for that and his efforts during his life, having gone through all of that. And so we recognize all of these people for their contributions to the arts and, and to film and TV with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. Let's go to best funniest lines. I'll start with the first one here. Gazo. How's about investing in condominiums? It's safe. Rocky. Condominiums? Yeah, condominiums. I never use them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I liked also the when he goes in to get a loan and they ask him, do you have a criminal record? And he says, nothing worth bragging about. Uh, I feel like a Kentucky Fried Idiot yeah I like that one too (laughs) Rocky I was wondering if uh, you wouldn't mind marrying me very much the most unique proposal I think I've ever seen on film that's a good one Mickey why do you have to wear that stinking sweatsuit Rocky it brings me luck you know Mickey brings you luck I'll tell you what it brings. It brings flies. You got any others, Jeremy? I don't. Yeah, I'm out. I only had the one. Well, my other best line wasn't funny, but I thought the last line when he wins, the yo, Adrian, I did it. That line is like, you know, so triumphant. Adrian, there's one thing I want you to do for me. Rocky, what's that? Win. Win. This is always one of my favorites because I can always visualize Burgess Meredith holding the clump of grapes and popping him in his mouth. And he's going, you're going to eat lightning and you're going to crap thunder. My last nominee, reporter. Rocky, what did you think going into the last round? Rocky, I don't know, that I should have stayed in school or something? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Do you have any others, Dad? No. All right. Are we ready for the Stanley rubric? Yes. Let's start with legacy. Dad, you want to start us out? Sure. We try to divide these and the industry and the public. And I thought long and hard about this. Okay. And of all of the Rocky films, for whatever reason, I guess this one seems to be the one that's paled the most. Three seems to be one of the more popular. Obviously, one won the Academy. Three seems to be a very popular one. Certain elements, I personally am not a big fan of four, but some people were. So the industry kind of said this left them a little uh, wanting of, you know, it didn't have the quite the same feel. It didn't have the quite the same 
determination, the same the same thing that made them feel for Rocky that Rocky One ultimately did. So it didn't get the best reviews. So I went with a two for the industry. For the public, I can't honestly tell you that I've talked with anybody who's a Rocky film fan who talks about Rocky Two. Everybody talks about Rocky the original, and they talk about uh, Rocky Three in large part because Mr. T was just a real good character. I mean, he was a real badass. Having him in that film was a big, big deal and a big coup. That really made the film. So I had to go with a 1.5 because I don't think people re- really think about this film all that much. So I ended up with a 3.5 for Legacy. Yeah, I was pretty bad too. I was slightly better than than you, but I have basically the same opinion that industry can appreciate things a little bit more about the movie than I think the public. I gave it a three for industry, and then I gave it a two for the public. Uh, and that, that was out of five, right? So, yeah. So I thought overall, like a five out of 10, I seemed pretty fair. You know, like this movie, it just really, it, it was almost like a do-over because he didn't win in the last movie. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. I would agree with you that this movie is panned, but it's not like it's Rocky Five or like the last three Rambo films. I think, yes, this is the lowest of the ones that people remember, but I think it's more entertaining to most people than actually Rocky One. Rocky One has some really kind of flat stretches, if you ask me, like them going to the skating rink just kind of boring. It's meandering through the film and you just kind of want to get to the boxing (laughs) sequences. This one gives you a little bit more action. This has a little less of that kind of like flat times. And yes, there's the downturns in the middle of it, but I don't think you get to the full Rocky franchise without two being there. So I'm not sure I agree from an audience standpoint that it's nearly that low. Yes, there are not a lot of people that talk about it, but it becomes... Instead of an individualized film, it becomes part of the larger franchise. Nobody talks about Rocky Five because it's terrible. And most people probably gravitate towards three or four. I don't hear a lot of people that talk about Rocky One. And at this point in time, I think Rocky Six is probably a better movie than probably one or two, in my opinion. But Three was always my favorite and will continue to be my favorite, not just because of Mr. T, but I really enjoyed that whole story angle and how everything kind of came together. And Apollo becomes not the antagonist, but kind of the best friend, which sets up Rocky Four. And part of the reason that I hate that one is, is he dies. Again, spoiler alert. That was always a devastating moment for me, especially with how much I like Three. So from an industry standpoint, I think a 3.5 is warranted. I just don't see a movie that was this successful, that this is played often on cable forever, that this movie is in syndication, that people watch this repeatedly, even though it's maybe not the one that they go back to the most. So I had a 3.5 for the industry. I had a four for audience for a 7.5. Okay. So that's a 5.33 average between the three of us. Impact significance. From an industry standpoint, it's not going to get the same accolades as the 
film that got all of the awards attention and won a bunch of them and won Best Picture. But it was still the third highest grossing movie of the year, and Stallone was a huge star at this point and got pretty much whatever he wanted in order to make this movie. Hollywood was willing to give him whatever he needed because they knew the success of this franchise. So I think this is a four in the immediacy. And from the audience, they were clearly knocking down the doors in order to watch this stupid film. If you, Dad, somebody who is like anti-pop culture, is willing to go out to the theaters and has his mother drive him, I can only imagine what the rest of pop culture, who actually actively participates in it, was doing at the time. So this is a 4.5 for me. I go for an 8.5 overall. Industry, I went with a 4. Because I agree, I think the industry kind of liked it. I think the industry was building the momentum, building this into a franchise. And I'll agree with your 4.5, because it was big when it was out. I mean, it was one that you talked about in school. You know, I would have been, uh, I think I was a freshman in high school at the time, or would have been just out of my freshman year. We talked about this, and it was a big pop culture thing. You know, it's almost a five, if I remember correct. But I'll go with a 4.5 because I think there were some people who still didn't quite buy into the franchise, but I'll go with 4.5. The only reason I can't get to a five on the audience portion of it, the original Rocky was by far the biggest movie of 1976 and just took away the box office and was a huge draw. And this is the same decade where you had Jaws and you had Star Wars and you had The Godfather all set the record for being the highest grossing film of all time and just redefine what the blockbuster was. So even though this is the third highest grossing movie of a particular year, it's not like it's one of those other ones that I would put as a definite five in those immediate impact that really changed cinema in a completely different way than this movie. Yeah, for me, significance is a little lower in, in some of those things, but I kind of think about it from like a like a filmmaking perspective, right? And the first movie, like there's there's movies that are fun to watch, right? And then there's movies that are a lot of times not as fun to watch, but critically acclaimed because of this or that, right? So the first movie to me is like, that movie there's no contest out of all the rocky movies as far as like a filmmaking perspective none of them are even remotely close to the first one this one it's not terminator 2 we're talking about here this is rocky 2 it's not really eclipsing the other movie like other than people walk away happier that he won and all that stuff but um i think it is a statement about like People wanted a sequel, and they they were going to show up for this. So in the industry one, I gave it a four for industry because it's it's a very very box office big movie. I'm sure it did very well, but I agree with you in a lot of ways about all the other movies of the time are like we're not going to it's not going to be in the top five or. I mean, maybe not even in the top 10 of movies that were coming out at that time. The audience-wise, I gave it a 3.5, you know? I think they, they may have gone to it, 
but I don't think they liked it the same way that they liked all the other movies during that time. So that's an 8.17 average between the three of us. Novelty. Let's let Jeremy lead off. Okay. So my score overall was a six for novelty because it's the same movie as the other movie in a lot of ways, you know, like we're basically dealing with the same match. We got it a different way, but it's very, very similar kind of thing. And the novelty aspect of it is the rags to riches story kind of going wrong. I think that isn't a common thing in a lot of movies. And then I also think that her going into a coma, that's kind of a risk at that time, you know, like it's kind of a big deal for them to do in, in the, and then he's in like the whole way he's dealing with that whole thing. It was risky in in a way. That's the novelty stuff that I thought they did five overall. I tried to think of this a little different than I normally do with novelty because it's a sequel. So I started thinking of all the sequels. This is a lot better than Caddyshack 2. It's a lot better than Airplane 2. Major League 2? Yeah. It's not nearly as good as Godfather 2. What is? I started thinking about it in that way. So I've tried to find something that's a little, you know, more towards the quality side than the non-quality side. So that's where I came up with a six for novelty. Well, originally I scored it a seven, but I I think about it now in relation to some of the other Rocky films. I think three is incredibly novel to itself because it kind of redefines this. And to take your point, Jeremy, this is somewhat of a mirror image of the original one with just a different ending it kind of marries a lot of the same storylines and kind of gives us the more complete ending that we wished we would have had out of the first one. But by doing that, I think it still establishes a lot of the tropes of the sports movie, the underdog story, even though we kind of got that as part of one, but the David versus Goliath atmosphere that I think is one that is often a part of every sports movie that's successful continuing kind of the musical theme of the triumphant battler, the guy defying the odds type of thing. And so even though I know Stallone bristles at this being a sports movie, it is a sports movie. It kind of sets the routine of what becomes the more regular sports movie of the next 20 years as we get this huge sports movie run from basically the original Rocky up through, I would say maybe the mid nineties, the late 90s, kind of up until maybe about Remember the Titans might be some of the last, like, really great ones, uh, that early 2000s run, because at that point we'd had Any Given Sunday as well. All of those have a lot of similar common themes, and the fact that this is still a very grounded movie and it's not so fantastical, as opposed to some of the other Rocky films that just kind of become a little bit over the top, Like Rocky goes from this punchy fighter who somehow claims the title at the end of two to all of a sudden becoming like this absolutely ripped, literate, great champion and basically replaces Apollo Creed as being this easygoing top of the world type guy by the 
time we see him brought down to earth by Clubber Lang in the third movie. It's kind of a weird transition that he goes from absolutely nothing to being pretty much everything by the uh, time we get 15 minutes into three. So I'll match everybody's sixes just to make the math easier, and uh, we'll go with that. But I do think this has a little bit more novelty than maybe some other sequels that uh, were mentioned here. Did you need help with the math on that one? Sure. Six. Thank you. Classicness. Dad, your category. Okay. Really, the most dominant character in the film is female. I mean, ultimately, she's the pivotal person within the film. Everything revolves around her. I think it's a little ahead of its time. You know, I mean, it was a fairly balanced film as far as as ethnic diversity. The only thing I would mark it down for is, is boxing has become a lar- or among a large portion of society more barbaric. I mean, I didn't even think about it again until I was thinking, watching this film, that the fighters actually ended up at the hospital to recoup afterwards. I mean, what other sport do the participants immediately go to a hospital and spend several days and have to be evaluated and uh, and treated by medical personnel. So I had to give it points down for that. I think it's one of the reasons why boxing has not been able to maintain itself in pop culture the way it was before the 1980s. So I went with an eight. First off, I see your comments on a strong female lead and raise you, this is the 1970s. There were strong female leads running all over the place. This is the same year as Kramer versus Kramer and another movie we've done on the podcast, Alien, where Sigourney Weaver literally is fighting a xenomorph. I don't know how you can say that this is somehow ahead of its time. It was of its time. Okay. So first, I'm just going to take that off the top. Now, I do think there is an element of timelessness with these films, and we've already mentioned on multiple fronts how these are still relatable stories to the average person, even though these happened 40-plus years ago. Everybody's been fired at least once usually in their life. Everybody understands what it's like to kind of go through hardships and to struggle with your identity and getting your partner on board with what your identity is. I think these are all common tropes of what it is to be American and human in a modern sense. These aren't necessarily things that were of the past, but they're still universal truths. Again, I also think the dealing with fame portion of this, as we've mentioned before, comes with the virality of social media and how much easier it is to get fame, but how quickly that dissipates and creates a completely new structure for you once that's part of your life. But the two portions of this that you briefly touched on, Dad, but I think kind of downgrade this as far as the classicness is just how little boxing means to our modern culture in where we are now, 40 years removed from where we were then. Boxing was what, one of the biggest sports along with like baseball in the late 70s? And now it's something that nobody cares about. Like the UFC and WWE are much bigger than boxing. And I think part of that is for 
what happened to Muhammad Ali with all of the mental and physical disabilities he basically attained from taking too many hits. I think that America kind of woke up to the physical violence that was part of boxing culture and that wasn't a big deal. And then it all of a sudden became a big deal. And so by extension, I just don't think people appreciate it as much or enjoy it as much as they used to when it was one of the biggest sports around. In addition, you have it clearly highlighted within this film that he's dealing with the dangers of boxing, and yet he does it anyway. And I just don't think you can necessarily overcome that from a 2022 standpoint where we're dealing with football being barbaric because of all the concussions. And we literally saw somebody who might have died on the field earlier this year and had a huge like week-long conversation about concussions. And yet we go into boxing where it's taking that many more blows to an unprotected head. So from those two standpoints, I have to downgrade it from where I'm at. So the timelessness gets it up a point, but I'm going to take it back two steps and get it down to a six. It is obvious to me neither of you are fight fans. <laughs> Correct. I, I was at one point in time. Yeah. So on, uh, boxing is still the biggest, unfortunately. I'm a big fan of all fighting. I watch all of them. watch bare-knuckle boxing. I watch all of it. And uh, the heavyweights right now in boxing, uh, Tyson Fury has brought it back to the biggest. Uh, you may have seen Floyd Mayweather, Conor McGregor. Way bigger than anything that any fighting sport is doing. I love UFC. It's not anywhere near it. WWE is way bigger than UFC. It's crazy how, how big that is. And uh, I, I, I do love, I think, do think in like modern public's eyes, UFC has eclipsed what boxing had. So a lot of what your guys are saying is true in that sense. And that through fixed fights, through all kinds of things they lost, like Mike Tyson, all of the stuff that was making boxing kind of what it was, they lost quite quite a lot of that. And um, then the fighters not making the big fights, you know, that's one of the big problems in, in all of those sports that's kind of held it back in many, many ways. And so other fighting sports like UFC, they're making the big fights. So the guys are more willing to do it. Bare Knuckle has really come back and it's like, opening this whole other door and that's really cool there's all kinds of crazy things happening if you ever watch like russia they have all they have fighting in phone booths they have fighting in the back seats of cars like it's crazy stuff that is is going on and, and in fighting sports now a big uh conversation kind of came about where uh women fight now which is uh one of the big things even even for example dana white early on in the UFC days said he would never have women fight in the UFC ever. And now it's one of the biggest things in the UFC. And it's just easy how like people can kind of see the different perspectives change as they kind of get opened up to these different things. And then in fighting, one of the big conversations is can trans women fight women? And there's a trans woman that is fighting women. And is that okay? And the bottom line that people have kind of come to the concession is that as long as you're upfront and honest about things, if somebody wants to do these things, they can. Bullfighting is legal. There's nothing more dangerous than bullfighting, you know, like 
There's more injuries in ice skating than there are in boxing. There's all kinds of stuff that just people don't really know about these things. And they kind of get a perspective of what these sports are. And these movies perpetuated in a lot of ways because of kind of how they portray these things. And so in that sense, they, they, they are classic portrayals of what boxing uh, was seen as to the public. The way that the fights go, that's not how, bo- if you ever watch boxing, that's not really how any of those fights kind of go. These are dream scenarios of how these boxing fights go. And they're way more exciting than, than almost any, although sometimes it is that exciting. But usually it's not. It's kind of a weird portrayal in that sense. I think the most classic parts about also the, the movie is is capturing the time, you know, like when you watch those movies, like you can kind of feel transported back to that time, to those places. It feels very, very authentic. So I give it a very high score for being classic because of all of that. So I, I also gave it an eight, but it's not because of how accurately it represents boxing or any of that stuff. I think it's more of a fun way to look at a lot of that that thing and there there's the negative side of it and all that stuff is very real but you know these are these are adults they can make their own choices do a lot of dangerous things in the world i understand your points jeremy and i'll i'll indicate that i was enough of a boxing fan i paid attention i watched fights the tyson ear bite i was watching that on pay-per-view and then after that, we had the whole situation where George Foreman's fighting in his 50s. And it, it, to me, that kind of went to the point where it kind of lessened the sport as being viable in my mind. Yeah, you used to be the baddest man on the planet. And now what, like, this is similar to our, our presidential situation. You're watching George Foreman fight Tommy Morrison and you know these are not the baddest men on the planet at this point. <laughs> but I mean, I you know, it was a big deal to watch to watch Sugar Ray uh, Leonard and and I mean, I kept track of who the fighters were and the champs of each weight class and such. And somewhere along the line, I'm about that age where I started losing interest for various reasons, and. About right after the generation right after me is when Dana White became prevalent and some of the other alternative situations. So, yeah, the fight world is is a crazy thing, and it it's uh, it's it's not a beautiful thing. There's ups and downs in all of it, and there's a lot of other things to do now. You know, so many other things you can see and. I, I get it. It's not the like back in the day of boxing. It's similar to how television shows also were back then. It was like everybody was watching this. And did you see it? If you didn't see it, you missed out. And it was part of society much, much more than these things are now. Even the World Series. Sometimes I'll be like, the World Series is going on right now? Oh, I didn't even know. It's great that we can all choose to live these like very you know, individualized lives, but it keeps us separate as a society also. And so I don't like that. 
Rewatchability, I'll make this very simple. This still hits me in all the places that I need to to enjoy this film. I enjoy it like I'm probably 12 yet. And so for me, this is a nine. It's not up there as the peak of my Rocky watching fandom. I still love six. I still love three. I'm not as huge a fan on four. It, it misses a few of the big notes for me, not having Gonna Fly Now and Apollo dying. But, you know, there are certain ones, the original Creed film, that are kind of up there for me. And so I'll give this a, a nine. I like it for all those same reasons, just not quite as much as you. Seven is what I gave it. 6.5 for me. I hadn't seen it. uh, I think maybe I've seen it twice since I saw it in the theaters. It was long enough that I had a hard time remembering some of the things that were going to be happening. I knew what the ending was. You know, this is basically once every five, seven years for me. If it's on, I'll watch it again. So that's where I'd come in at 6.5. So that was a 7.33 for classicness and a 7.5 for rewatchability. For audience score, we had a 90% for Google users and an 82% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.6. So to repeat the categories, we had a 5.33. For impact significance, we had an 8.17. For novelty, we had a 6. For classicness, we had a 7.33. For rewatchability, we had a 7.5. For audience score, we had an 8.6, giving us a final total of 42.93. And that currently places it on our list. Between Shadow of a Doubt and Sleepless in Seattle. Mm, Okay. And actually, it's a couple of points higher than the original Rocky, so that one might be nominated at some point for a revisit. Since it was our third episode. So remaining questions... I have a few issues with the plotting of of this particular film and some inconsistencies. So, famously, before Rocky's famous run, as well as what he drives to the match, he has his Trans Am again that he sold to Pauly, but it never explains how he gets it back. Okay, so when he's selling it to Pauly, as he's walking away, Pauly yells, if you and Adrian ever need it, just ask. But then why would it be parked out in front of his home? <laughs> yeah. So he Pauly sold right. it to Polly for money, but then Polly just lets him use it like he never sold it to him? That makes no sense. No, it makes perfect sense because Polly's entire existence is based <laughs> upon the success of Rocky. <laughs> You're probably right. It's probably an error in the script. But, you know, we could play along. It could be borrowed. (laughs) It was just an inconsistency for me. So, two. We've now talked at nauseum during this entire ordeal about how Rocky's trying to protect his health and most specifically his eye because he could go blind because they cut him in the first film. Which, after this film, they never mention again in Rocky 3, 4, 5, 6, how he needs to, like, protect his face because... He has these health concerns going back to Rocky 1. You would think, being a huge, significant plotline of this movie, that would be mentioned at least one more time. They do mention, like, brain damage in Rocky 5 after he finally gets, like, an MRI. But because nobody watches 5 because it's so bad, it's just kind of glossed over. Why doesn't he ever frickin' cover his face? He just goes out into the middle of the ring and lets 
Apollo Creed punch him repeatedly right in the face. No other boxer. I've watched enough boxing matches. Nobody goes in with their hands down like near their sides and just let somebody just continually punch them in the face. And it's not like he's even doing small jabs that's just like touching his face to see, you know, how much distance I could do and feeling it out. No, he's taking a sledgehammer jab to his face repeatedly throughout the course of this movie. Because he tore his pectoral muscle. <laughs> that's why that's why the whole thing came up with shifting from being a lefty to a righty and all that is because he tore his pectoral muscle. He couldn't raise his arm. But even in the first film, he lets him just completely annihilate his face. Go back and watch the fight from the first film. Uh, it's incredibly mirroring of the second film. It makes no sense. Neither of the two fighters have a boxer stance. Neither of them. They both stand like Roy Jones Jr. with their hands low. And like there are fighters that fight that way, but they don't get punched in the face. <laughs> like Rocky would be retired after these two fights. The last time we just had two boxers that just like stood in the middle of the ring and re really just went at each other. I think I watched like a replay of their fight. It was from like 2009. And by 2011, both of them were out of the sport. Yes. Yeah, if you got punched in the face the way they do in that, that's how brain damage happened. <laughs> All right, my final issue. How does Rocky win the fight if he never actually confirms with the referee that he's okay to continue? Every referee will stand you up and they will check on you and say, are you okay to continue? And you have to address them and they have to accept that answer for you to be able to keep going. And yet that never happens. He immediately is called the winner and he collapses into his trainer's arms. He is literally standing for all of two seconds in order to win the fight. How unclimatic. Oh, sorry. We have to go and review the videotape <laughs> to see whether or not he actually was, I mean, really? I've seen fights that actually had that happen. And so the referee, they have total control of what's going on in the fight. Now, you are right. Normally what you do is you grab both gloves, shake both gloves, say, are you able to continue? take one step to the left, and then they're able to continue. However, I've seen plenty of fights where the momentum is going. They don't want to do that. They don't want to take the time to do that. And they just say, okay, you're good. Keep going. And I've also seen, and this was, uh, I've seen in the UFC this happen too. I've seen a double knockout where the guy stands up and he says, what happened? I'm like, you win. <laughs> like, I won. And they raise his hand. And so uh, the ref has total control in the ring. He can do whatever he wants. So if he decides this guy won, this guy won. All right. <laughs> well, I guess it's good that we had you here, but I don't know. It's, it's always one of those that's just never quite sat right with me, but all right, I'll take that answer. Yeah, I mean, the re the trainer being in the ring, yeah, I think you're right. And, and probably this is a stretch, me explaining it this way, but – being the, the devil's advocate, that, you know, that could be the reason. <laughs> All right, either of you, any remaining questions? I don't. Okay. Well, thank you for being on with us, Jeremy. We appreciated having you. 
Anything you'd like to promote? Sure. I, I actually also just wrote a book. So I am a filmmaker. I mentioned my website earlier, theskyisland.com. And then you can also just put my name into wherever you watch movies or wherever you stream or Amazon or whatever. And if you put my name into Amazon or also now Barnes and Noble, some other book places, you will find my book. It's my first book. And it is about, I was in the cannabis industry way early on. And I sold weed out of my house. I was home invaded numerous times. I threw a traveling hash competition uh, and I was almost arrested internationally. And I was arrested in the United States. So there's all these stories of, of crime. There's also a couple funny stories in there of people who partied too hard at some of my events. And the book is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It's called Jack Moves. A Memoir of the Weed Trade and Dangerous Living. All right. We'll have to check that out. Cool. Dad, any final thoughts for the week? No, I just uh, I just happened to uh, spend the, the day, uh, I took the afternoon off kind of, and just happened to be scrolling through and I came to uh, Turner Classics. Happened to see the last two-thirds of uh, Have or Have Not. And I, I just, there are so many great films that are out there that you don't get to see very often. I think I've seen The Have or Have Not about maybe three or four times. I probably haven't seen it in at least 10 or 15 years. And I'm just watching this going, wow, Howard Hawks directed this with with Bacall and Bogey and, I mean, and... Uh, Walter Brennan, it's just such a great film. And uh, I just encourage people to, to consider the whole genre of films, not just recent, but go back and look at films over the last decades. Well, that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, in recognition of the 81st anniversary of Pearl Harbor, we will be discussing From Here to Eternity from 1953, directed by Fred Zinneman, written by Daniel Teradash, starring Burt Lancaster, Montgomery Clift, Deborah Kerr, Donna Reed, Frank Sinatra, and Ernest Borgnine. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at the new RonnieDuncanStudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.